How's everyone doing this morning? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. It's great to be here this morning. Happy to be a part of this fantastic summer series as one of the <clears throat> guest speakers. It's been a great lineup, has it not? How awesome is it to be able to have such a wonderful group of speakers who can come and fill in while uh, Pastor Josh and Amy are, can get away for an extended period of time of refreshing and renewal. I was here when there weren't that many people to, to come and fill the pulpit. I remember those years. And some of you remember the time before that when there was no getting away. So we're here before me. But it's, uh, it's great to, um, to be here to fill in for them while they're getting away, and uh, hopefully God is speaking and pouring into their lives and, and bolstering their vision for hope here in Chestertown. I'm uh, grateful to be a part of this series, and if you were here last week, then you know that I have my work cut out for me following up Pastor Tim. <laughs> he did a great job, didn't he? Amen. I know that I sure learned a lot. I was surprised to find out how much YouTube Gen Z watches. Eight and a half hours a day. I can't believe I watch more YouTube than Gen Z. <laughs> they only watch eight and a half hours a day? I knew the young generations were slackers. They didn't know how big a slackers they were. I love YouTube. Love you too. I, they could shut down the entire internet for all that I care, and I know that's a weird thing to say on the internet. Just leave YouTube. Love YouTube. And how about the point that he made about 14 being the new 28? Man, that's mind blowing. And so, if my math is right, I guess that makes 40 the new 80? feels like it. <laughs> I might watch that camp video, and I'm, I'm ready for an extra strength ibuprofen, a glass of water, and a nap. <sighs> Last week, it was worse. The youth one, when they were running and tackling each other, and the tires and all that. All, I just, all that first thing, I'm, man, it looks like it's going to hurt tomorrow. <laughs> it happens to all of us. Pastor Tim did a great job. A lot of great information, a lot of great points, and what really stuck out to me was how much more mentally and spiritually kids today have to battle with their surroundings, with culture, with the pressures all around them from such an early age. I, things that, you know, it, it hits home for me. I, I got a four-year-old and a six-year-old. I think a lot about the things that these kids, my kids, have to face at such a young age that I didn't know. This stuff that they find out now, I didn't learn about till like a year ago, right? It, it's a great reminder, really, that none of us, even the most, the youngest, the most vulnerable, the most innocent among us are immune or can avoid these issues today. There's no avoiding them today. 
kids are dealing with adult things earlier and earlier. And they have my sympathy because, as most of you know from living it, being an adult isn't all that it's cracked up to be. You spend 18 years, I just want to be an adult. I just want to grow up. I want to get out of here. I want to do this. And then you spend the rest of your life, whether you live to be 100 or you live to be however, I just want to go home. I just want to go back. The kids deal with adult things earlier and earlier. Being an adult's not always fun. It's not always easy. And dealing with adult things, those big, important things that we face day in and day out comes with challenges. And dealing with those big things comes with big responsibilities, big consequences, and big pressure, which results in what? Big emotions which is great when those big emotions are positive, the good emotions, but not so great when they're the bad ones, the negative ones that we all feel from time to time, and sometimes some of us let consume us. It's much easier within ourselves, right, to live in that negative emotion. It's a lot easier. So this morning, I want to kind of use that as our launching point and take a look at Psalm 42, what the psalmist says, and how we might get unstuck. So if you're maxed out, stressed out, wigging out, pulling your hair out, ready to scream and shout, you're down and out, you're feeling left out, or even if you're out in left field, this one's for you. And if you're not, hold on, because you might be pretty soon, just around the corner, right? Jesus gave us a promise in the book of John. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. That is a statement. That's a promise. It's definitive. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. We'll get there. So this is for you, whether you're there now or you're on your way there, or you're coming out of it, because you might go back again. Let's get you out of that state of mind. Let's get you into the peaceful presence of God. What do you think? All right. Let's start by looking at verses 1 through 3. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Who can I go? When, When can I go? And meet with God. My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? Have you ever been in a situation, been in this place of desperation, where you just long for God? I mean, just this deep, guttural, deep from within longing, desperate, a thirst and hunger for God. Maybe for you, Everything just seems to be so dark around you, and there's this intense pressure upon you, and you're just waiting, waiting on God, waiting for God to move in your life, in your situation, because 
If he doesn't, I don't know. You've been there. Maybe you're there now. And if you are, that's okay. This guy, he was there. He wrote a poem from his heart, and he made it into Scripture. So if you feel like that this morning, you're in good company. As a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, God. And when we move to verse 4 here real fast, we keep reading. We start to see a clearer picture as to why this guy feels the way that he does. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. The reason that he is crying out to God, desperately longing and waiting on God to move in the situation, why he describes with such a remarkably apt and poetic phrasing that is his soul thirsts for God, that as a deer pants for the stream, so my soul pants for you. As I pour out my soul, look at all these references here, is that for some reason or another, he finds himself in exile. He's, he's away from home. He's away from where he belongs, where he, he wants to be, just like adults who want to go back to being little kids. Long to be. Have you ever been there? You ever been somewhere you didn't want to be and you wanted to be somewhere else? Maybe it's geographical. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a relationship. Fill in the blank. But our man is far from home. He's in exile. He's far from Jerusalem and he longs to be there to go home to Jerusalem and go to the temple so that he can worship God there with all of God's people, to be united with them and, and with God in the house of God. Day and night, his tears have been his food. His diet has constantly been the tears of agony over his separation. And on top of that, what kind of people is he surrounded by? Let's go back to verse 3 real fast. My tears have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long, where is your God? Is he around encouraging people? No. no. He's surrounded by naysayers. Anybody? Critics. People who mock him. They mock his faith. Mock his God. Not only is he homesick, likely missing his friends and family, certainly missing his proximity to the temple, which was fundamentally central to the worship of God in his time. That's where the presence of God was to be found, in the temple. That's why you went to the temple to worship God. But to add to his misery, he is surrounded by a bunch of people who are picking on him, and they're mocking him, and they're kicking him while he's down. He's stuck in a rut, and they're just throwing the mud on him. You know, one of the biggest influences in our lives is the words of other people. In my experience, personally and professionally, more often than not, it is the negative words, those negative voices that carry the most weight and consume us the most. Think back 20 years ago. Do you have voices that, you, man, that person said this to me, and it hurt. 20 years, 25, 30 years, 40 years ago, I, I still remember it. 
But do you remember what the positive thing someone said about you 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago? Probably not. We remember the negative ones. They're the ones that, that stick with us. It's those wounds that stay there. And there's certainly no shortage of negative voices to be found in the world. Turn on the TV. Turn on the news. The media thrives on telling a story of negativity, of, of despair, a story of hopelessness. They've got to keep it dramatic for the 24-hour news cycle. We've got to find something new to be outraged about. We've got to keep the viewership up. Marketing and advertising, you don't even get a break when it goes to the to commercial. How many commercials are geared towards you living a godly life? The number one goal of marketing and advertising is for you to buy their thing. They're not worried about your walk with Jesus. They certainly don't care about what sort of life you live as long as you live it with the product that they're selling. You can do whatever you want. Just buy this $80,000 car. <laughs> we'll give you a good lease rate. There is and always will be the critics who don't think you're doing this right or that right. They nitpick every little thing you do and try to bring you down. You can't do anything right for them. You can't do anything right with them. And everything you do is wrong. You know that person, right? If you don't, you are that person. <laughs> and you know, that, that person likely, they have a negative view of their own self, right? They just want you to be as miserable as they are. Because what does misery love? There will always be those who criticize you for your faith. Why would you believe in that? Why would you waste your time with that? It's a fairy tale. It's garbage, yada, yada. Hey, you've heard it all. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on the negative examples. I, frankly, they aren't hard to find. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination. And there's probably a bunch that come into your mind that I, I didn't even mention. But there's always this voice from the outside that's going to question not in a seeking positive way, but in a demeaning negative way, just like we see here in our psalm. Where is your God, they say. And this questioning isn't always as blunt and as direct as, hey, where is your God? Sometimes it's in, you want to be happy? Buy this $80,000 car. It's subtle, just like the snake in the garden. Only real happiness, only true joy comes from owning this Mercedes. Maybe it does. I've never had one. <laughs> but that's the message of the world. That's to be expected. John's first epistle tells us what? We are in the world, but not of it. In his gospel account, Jesus tells his disciples, if they have hated me, surely they're going to hate you. And here our psalmist finds himself down and out. He's stuck in his feelings of despair and distress. And at least part of the reason is because of the negative voices that he's surrounded by as he is in exile from his homeland. The apostle Peter, in his first epistle, and I, I love this. I love the epistles of Peter. I think that they're underutilized and uh, maybe underappreciated. Sometimes we don't, I think you can preach from it every week just about. Peter routinely 
calls the recipients of this letter exiles and foreigners. That they are exiles and foreigners in this world. And I've brought some examples. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, in verse 1, to God's elect, exiles scattered through the provinces. Verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Then chapter 2, verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. In our psalm, the psalmist is dismayed because he's cut off from a geographical location. He's cut off from Jerusalem, he's cut off from the temple, and he longs to return there to worship and be in God's presence. But Peter, we see here, he's not just talking about a specific geographic location. We're not just exiles because we're of a, where we live. When Peter calls us foreigners and exiles, he has a deeper and more spiritual connotation. He means that this world is not our home. In it, but not of it. We worship in spirit and truth, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John. We do not require a physical, geographical location to worship because we are in Christ. And as we are in Christ, we are foreigners and exiles in this world. So what can we expect from those outside of Christ to do? Some will question positively, but there will always be those who do not have good intentions. There will always be others who mock or criticize. And it can be burdensome, it can be weary, that negativity can zap and drain us. But check out verse 4 and look at what the psalmist says and does in this verse. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. He remembers. He remembers as he pours out his soul, he remembers the good times. Because sometimes in the dark times, remembering the good times is all you have. You can't see in front of you. You don't realize, hey, there's good things coming, but I just can't see them. But you can look back and remember the things that God has done for you, the way God has worked in your life. He remembers how he used to go to the house of God with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Since he's unable to take part, be a part of worship in the temple, he's going to remember the gift of the times that he spent there before. His remembrance of the praise and the shouts of joy are going to sustain him until he can return. But you know, friends, we're not like the psalmist here. We aren't cut off. We're not cut off from the temple. We may at times feel like we're cut off. We may feel like him sometimes. We may empathize him, but we aren't like him. We're not cut off. We have access to the Father because Jesus, right? Because Jesus. We have access to the Father through Jesus. We are in him and united in him through the gift of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go to the temple to access God because we are the temple of God. You know, when Paul writes in the Corinthians, your body is a temple of God, it just doesn't mean don't smoke, don't drink, and make sure you exercise. It's because that's where God has chosen to live. He's chosen to live inside of you. 
You are the temple. Remember before the temple, we had the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament where the presence of God dwelt? And you remember how they used to have to carry it on the poles because if they touched it, they would die? You're the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God, you are where God dwells. We don't have to go to the temple because we are the temple. God came down to us, tore the veil, and gave us access to him once and for all. God came down to us and made us his people, his temple. He chose us to be his dwelling place. And we aren't like the psalmist because we're not in exile. We have the ability to come to the house of God, to gather together among the festive throng. One of the greatest ways to get unstuck, one of the greatest ways to defeat the negativity, the despair, the hopelessness of what we might face, no matter the reason we're facing it, is through the gift of each other. The gift of God's people, God's church, we have each other. You're filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, you're a temple, I'm a temple, we get together. We're a temple, not made by human hands. Would you guys like to come up? We tag team. We tag team. Take a drink of water now and then. We have the gift of each other. The gift of God's people, God's church. We have each other. A spiritual community. Not just a community. You can go down the street and find community. You can join a club. I can, I can point them out to you. There's a bunch of them. Some of you are members of clubs that are just clubs. Not a spiritual community like the, like the church. As God's church, we're a special community. We're different than any other community. Let's go back to 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. We aren't just a community, but a special, supernatural, cohesive, unified group. United in Christ through the Holy Spirit, which now resides in and among in each and every one of us. You won't find that anywhere else other than God's church. There may be times where we where it seems like we're alone, surrounded by non-believers, by mockers, by critics, by negative people, surrounded by despair, hopelessness, but we have each other. We have a gift in each other, an opportunity and a privilege to speak life into each other, to build each other up, to encourage one another, to instill hope and thanksgiving and gratitude and joy in each other as we bear each other's burdens. We do this thing together. We bear each other's burdens. We do life together, and we bear with one another. And sometimes it's just bearing with each other, right? You have kids. You have a spouse. Sometimes it's just bearing with them. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're at some point, but you're making me mad right now. I, I don't know. I, like, I'm not going to touch you because I might and die, right? Like <laughs> Old Testament stuff, but you're making me mad right now. Sometimes you're just bearing with each other, bearing and grinning, right? 
just bearing with each other. But we have each other to build each other up. And it isn't that something we can be thankful for. We can be thankful for the gift of unity through the Holy Spirit. The gift of God's church. Thankful that God didn't leave us to do life alone. But to decide to dwell among us. To empower us. Ephesians, Paul talks about the power that raised Christ from the dead is now the power that's inside of you. That word power in the Greek is dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite. There's a powerful, there's a dynamite of God's presence inside of you. An explosion. We have the gifts of each other and the gift of his presence in our midst. Isn't that something we can give God praise for? But in this, this here, this key, do we take advantage of it? Do we actually utilize and implement this gift of each other? Do we come to church because that's what we do? It's our, it's what we, we go to church and then we go home and we dig in. Serve. Go to life groups. Go to events. Stick around a little longer. Get here a little early. Build relationships. Get to know other people. Other like-minded people who might be an encouragement, who might build us up, who might lift us up, speak life into us. If you're here this morning and you're stuck, you find yourself relating here with the psalmist, Depressed, discouraged, distressed. Maybe the, most, the greatest, most impactful task you can do is filter out those voices and do what the psalmist wishes he could do. Come to the house of God and find people who are going to speak life into you, who are going to encourage you, going to speak that encouragement, and they're going to speak affirmation, and they're going to build you up. What good is the gift if we don't, if we don't take advantage of it? All right, let's move to verse 5. We can take a look at another possible reason we might be stuck. It's another possible voice, source of negativity that can blind us from God's gift of joy in our lives. And we did the voice of other people, so (laughs) that leaves two voices. Which voice do you think I'm going to talk about now? Let's look at verse 5. Let's watch, let's watch this. Why, my soul, are you just downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. You notice what he does. Do you notice? Don't have to say anything. Just look at what he does. And let me ask you this. What do you tell yourself about yourself? What words are you speaking to yourself? What we say has a lot to do with what we end up accomplishing, how we feel, the inner strength that we have. When we constantly tell ourselves self-defeating statements, negative remarks, it has a devastating effect on our lives. What do your words to yourself sound like? What does your self-talk sound like? Do you tell yourself, 
I'm a loser. I'm stupid. I fail at everything. People don't like me. I won't amount to anything. Now, maybe yours isn't quite so harsh. Maybe you're not so quite. That's my self-talk. I'm probably just projecting on the rest of you. Um, So you can see why I'm an authority on this sermon here this morning. Um, It worked okay in first service. I'm going to try it again. Cultural references from the 90s are always uh, a dice throw. Uh, Anybody watch Saturday Night Live from the 90s familiar with it at all? Anyone know who the character Stuart Smalley is? (laughs) All right. Yes. Stuart Smalley, for those of you who don't know, is a character played by a guy named Al Franken. If that sounds familiar to you, that's because about 17 years later, he became a senator in Minnesota. Before that, senator, he was Stuart Smalley. And he had this bit called Daily Affirmations, where he spoke positively about himself through all the midst of all the negative things that was going on. And Stuart had a lot of problems. Like, a lot. I know some of you, and you think you have problems. No, you don't have Stuart's problems. Stuart had problems. I was going to show a YouTube clip, but copyright. Find everything on YouTube. He had a lot of problems, but he'd always try to put this kind of positive, funny, satirical spin on it, right? Uh, But he would begin his bit of daily affirmations with this line, right? The same line every time he would begin it and end it. He would look into the mirror, and he would tell himself, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Because if he told himself enough, he might just start to believe it, right? Now, maybe this Stuart Smalley is a little, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but the question is this. What do the words you speak to yourself sound like? Is your inner dialogue affirmative and uplifting? Do you say good things about yourself to yourself? Because if your self-talk is negative, the positive and encouraging things that others say to you are going to go in one ear and right out the other. You aren't going to ever truly believe the good things other people say about you if you don't believe it about yourself. You're not going to take it to heart. It's not, you're not going to let that soak in and be a part of your identity if you don't believe it yourself, if you don't speak those good things to yourself. Proverbs 23, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. If we're constantly putting ourselves down time and time again, what we're really doing is we're weakening ourselves. We diminish our ability to respond to life situations. And realistically, what we're doing is we're working against God's work and will in our lives. Because God wants to build you up. God doesn't want to destroy and tear you down. A negative mindset's already defeated. When we speak negativity over our lives, it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. When you say you can't, you can't. Because you already believe it in your heart to be true. You're already defeated. And that's not what God wants for your life. The Testament's full of language about overcoming, conquering, raising up, lifted up. 
God hasn't given us the good gifts that he's given us or come to dwell within us. He didn't make us his home so that we can work against it and counteract it with our own negativity. We have to be careful about how we speak to ourselves. You're an Ark of the Covenant. Careful how you handle it. We have to be careful what we let our minds tell ourselves about, tell us about ourselves. Instead, we bring it, we bring every thought captive and we bring it into obedience with Christ. We instruct and challenge our inner selves, bring it into conformity with Christ. That's what we see the author do in verse 5. Look at what he does. Why am I sore? You damn case. He questions himself. He talks to himself. We bring it into conformity with Christ. And the best way to do that, especially if we can't find any good or positive things to say about ourselves within ourselves, is that we speak God's truth into our lives. We speak the promises of God into our hearts and our minds and our souls. We saturate ourselves with what God says about us. We might not have many good things to say about ourselves, but God sure does. Scripture is chock full of references to how special God thinks you are and how much he cares about you. Take another look at that 1 Peter chapter 2 reference, verse 9. But you are a chosen people. You're chosen. God picked you. A royal priesthood. You're royalty. Not like England, like God, the creator of everything. You have made joint heirs with Christ. You inherit the promises of the Son. You rule and reign with Jesus. Paul tells us, don't you know that one day you're going to judge the angels? A holy nation. God's special possession. God chose you. He's made you royalty. And he says to you, he says to me, he says to his church, his people, each and every one of us, that we are his, and we are his in a unique and special way. And that you were all these things. Why? Why? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The praising piece is important. Self-talk. Go ahead, tell yourself anything you want to about yourself. But if it's anything short of what God says and what God has declared about you, it's just flat out wrong and not true. It's a lie. And we all know where lies come from. Look again real quick at the first two lines of of, uh, verse 5 here. Why my soul... The psalmist writes, why am I so, why are you downcast? Why are you disturbed? David kind of has a, a similar line. It's kind of a similar thought in one of his psalms, Psalm 62, verse 5 through 6. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. You see, do you see the, what, what David's doing? You see what our psalmist did, the two things that they did that's common? O my soul, he's addressing himself. Wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He is 
my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. What they have in common is both of them take charge of how they're feeling. And they talk to themselves and they try to shake some sense into them. Hey, soul. Hey, in there. Hey. Hope is in God. You know, sometimes you just have to interrupt. You know, you can talk back to yourself. Yes. Right? Shut up in there. I'm trying to hear that garbage. No. You can talk back to yourself. I do it all the time. I take walks at work around town, grumble. At, they probably think I'm some weird homeless guy. I don't know. <laughs> you just have to tell yourself to shut up and then speak some life into yourself. God is my rock and my refuge. I will not be shaken. You have to remind yourself. You have to remember that it is not in yourself that you have hope. It is not you who are your rock and refuge because if it was you, you would be what? Shaken. But it's in God. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy. Enemy. As broken humans attempting to work out our redemption and salvation in a broken world, we have this tendency to get stuck on our own, all by ourselves, right? Sometimes we're the ones who stand in the way of God's joy in our lives because we listen to the voices, sometimes those of other, uh, sometimes our own voice, and we allow them to define us. But when it comes to who we are, only the one who created us gets to define us. We don't find our identity in our voice or what someone else says about us, right? God's voice speaks our, our definition and our identity. God has decided our identity and who we are. Again, in the world, but not of it. The world might get to decide who they want to be based on their emotions, based on their feelings, based on how they want to express themselves that day. But God gets to define that for us as God's people, his special possession. Can't allow those voices, those negative voices to pull us into that rut of despair and get us stuck in the gutter of negativity and hopelessness. Because we are not people without hope. We don't allow them to rob us of the joy that God has blessed us with, has bestowed upon us through the life found in Christ. We can't allow it to distract us from the gifts and the blessings of our God, to distract us from our praise, from our rejoicing, from our thanks and our gratitude, because our hope isn't in those voices. Our hope is found in God's voice and what God says. And God says that we are his chosen people. We're adopted into his household. We're his and his alone. We can get unstuck. If we're stuck, we can get unstuck by filtering out those other voices and we combat them with a voice of praise. A voice of thanksgiving. A voice of gratitude. Speaking God's truth into our lives, into the lives of others. Because the more you say it internally to yourself and the more you say it out loud to other people, the more it's going to sink into your own spirit and saturate your heart. And Jesus tells us what? That out of the mouth of the heart speaks. So if you saturate your heart with God's truth, what's going to flow out? And when we allow that truth 
God's voice to rise above all the others in our lives, it's going to produce a heart of joy and not despair or distress. It's going to produce a life that is unstuck, out of the funk, out of the rut, and out of the mud and mire of misery, a life of joy, a life that is totally opposite and altogether different than stuck. And isn't a life of joy more favorable and more preferable than a miserable one? You have to say yes. I have rigged this to where you have to agree with me. Because if you do not agree with me, you're not in your right mind. And you should stay for third service and try it again. This is for you. What I find to be true, and I believe Scripture attests to, is that joy flows out of a heart and a voice of praise and thanks and gratitude. Take a look at the joyful people that you know. Someone that has joy down in their soul. Is there joy in the house of the Lord today? Right? Take a look at somebody who just is unshakable. And I bet this principle holds true that those people are also grateful. They're also grateful. Joyful people are grateful people. Gratitude produces a heart of joy. Joyfulness flows out of gratitude. And if we really think about it, even in the dark times, the trying times, the times of waiting on God, and we aren't sure what God is going to do, where you're at, are you going to show up, even in those times, if we've really sat down and we've thought about it, I bet even then when everything looks bleak, you could probably think of at least one thing yes. to be grateful for, to give thanksgiving. Right? Thanksgiving and gra- thankfulness and gratitude are different. Thankfulness is momentary, it's temporary, it's now. Gratitude, that's a, that's a longer, more, that's a way of being. It's a way of, it's a state of mind, right? Like happiness and joy. Happiness is in the moment. Joy is sustained. I bet if we really thought about it, we could come up with thing after thing after thing that God has blessed us with, right? Like the psalmist did in verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. I bet we could remember time after time God has shown up in our lives. And we have a lot to be grateful for, don't we? Joyfulness flows out of gratitude, and if you're down and stuck in a rut, the absolute best thing you can do If you only take one thing from this morning, if you only pay attention now, you want to get out of a rut, find something to give thanks for. Be thankful about something. Then do it again. And again. And again. Let the habit build. Be thankful about something. Keep a journal. It could be just a little list. What I'm grateful for. Then when you have your list, you have the things. Why? Why are you grateful for those things? Why are you thankful for those things? It'll produce the gratitude. It'll produce the joy. It's going to blossom and take root in your life.
But as with most things, the choice is yours. You know, God always gives you a choice. Always gives you a choice. You can choose to be thankful or you can be thankless. You can be grateful or not, but the consequences are clear. No thankfulness, no gratitude, no joy. And you all know that person. Yes, you all know that miserable person, ungrateful, don't thank anybody for anything. I'm related to pretty much all of them. <laughs> they don't watch this, so I'm on good. I think I'm clear. I hope my mom didn't watch this morning. Not you, mom. She knows what I'm talking about. It's okay. The choice is yours. God always gives us a choice and allows us the freedom to follow him, his ways, his principles or not. choice is clear in my opinion. Who doesn't want to live a life of joy? That's God's desire for us. That in whatever season or circumstance we find ourselves in, that's God's desire for us that we would be joyful. Jesus told his disciples in the book of John, uh, he told them all about the commands. These are the commands to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. And if you keep these joy, keep these commands, you'll my joy, I'm telling you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus instructs his disciples so that he could have complete joy. God wants you to have complete joy. Our joy is God's desire, but it only works when we do it God's way. And so if you find yourself lacking joy this morning, Talk to yourself. Ask yourself. So, why are you so downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Question yourself. And start speaking those good things to yourself. Surround yourself. Come on in and hear good things about you. Have people who are going to build you up. And remember the good things we, we, we have in God right? We filter out those negative voices. We replace them with the godly, encouraging, life-speaking voices. We surround ourselves with good, life-giving people. We cut out the toxic people. We speak good life. We speak life to ourselves. We speak God's truths and God's promises into our lives. And again, like I said before, we cut out the toxic people. Sometimes we're the toxic person to ourselves. So if that's you, cut it out. Sometimes we're the source of our own misery. God says you're chosen. You're his special possession. If you tell yourself anything less than that, you're wrong. You're lying to yourself. And we get unstuck by being grateful. By remembering who God is and what he has done. He's the one who has chosen you and made you his special possession. He's made you royalty. You were beggars. We were beggars. Now we're royalty. Or I don't know the melody. I don't. I don't do that. I got no rhythm. I got nothing. <coughs> but you were a beggar, and now you're royalty. God has made you royalty, a co-heir with Christ. And remember his goodness and the favor that he has shown. I want to end with this last verse, verses 7 and 8. Deep calls the deep in the roar of your waterfalls. Life together. Life with God. Deep calls the deep. Deep is in here. 
God is deep, deep is in you. Deep calls to deep. We call to each other in the roars of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. So if you're stuck, let the life-affirming words of Jesus, let them sweep over you, all the waves and breakers, because by day the Lord directs his love, and at night his song is with you. Let's pray this morning. God, we come to you this morning quite simply and humbly with praise and adoration. Thank you, Lord, for all that you are and all that you do. Who could count your works? Who could count all the, the wondrous things that you have done in our lives? Who can measure your love? How can we even begin to put a number upon the works and the love of an infinite God? God, this morning we pray for hearts of joy, hearts that are overflowing, a life that is overflowing with your joy and your peace. We pray that you would open our eyes to see all the goodness of your glory, that we might give thanks and praise to all, for all of your good gifts. God, we pray that those voices that aren't yours, Lord, that you would drown them out. We pray that when those voices that aren't yours would arise in our lives, that you would remind us of your great gifts, that you would recall, that we would recall the goodness and the beauty of your works, that you would remember Lord, you are our rock and our refuge. You are our salvation. In you, we will not be shaken. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us to overflowing, that we would run over with your strength and your empowerment, and that your peace and that your joy would rule and reign in our hearts and in our minds, that they would be the hallmark of our lives, that would be our testimony and our witness to a world in dire need of peace and joy. Abide with us, tend to us this day and throughout this week until we all return here next week to gather together with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen. Uh, with gratitude. I can say that it's been a pleasure to share what God has put on my heart with you this morning, and it's an honor to be a part of this series and a piece of this stellar lineup. And I can say with humility and a certain sense of definitiveness that better has come before me and better is yet to come after me.